I invite you to take a Bible to open it to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13. We're going to look at two very short parables in verses 31 to 33 of Matthew chapter 13. And this is on page 768. As you're turning there, I was uh, fortunate two Sundays ago in the afternoon uh, to be able to go and see at an independent uh, film studio in Akron, uh, Hidden Life. It's a movie uh, about an Austrian farmer in World War II who grows in his conviction of the unjustness of the war effort of the German army that he expects he's likely going to be conscripted into and be called to serve, but feels that he can't and shouldn't be a part of it. Uh, it's a three-hour film, and it's a, it's a beautiful film, but throughout, uh, as he is just a, a small rural farmer with a wife and a few young kids, one of the things that is regularly put before him as a temptation for why he should just go along with it and just not make any kind of a protest and refuse to swear allegiance to Hitler is because he is just from a small town in the middle of nowhere in the Alps and that even though he's wanting to make a protest, regularly he's challenged to say, why would you do it? No one will ever know. No one will ever hear. And it won't change the course of anything. So the only thing that's going to happen is that you're going to make life hard for your wife. You're going to make life hard for your kids. You're going to, and, and regularly he has pastors giving him this counsel. He has the mayor giving him this counsel. He has then the government giving him this counsel to say again and again, why would you do this? It can't make any difference. And it's, it's never offered back as a response. But as you're watching the film unfold, one of the ways in which I think you can rightly respond to that sort of logic to his thinking is, well, if what he's doing is so insignificant and won't change anything, why are you going to put him to death? Why are you using all the resources of your power and authority to punish him if what he's doing doesn't matter and if what he's doing can't possibly affect anything? It's a sad movie. He ends up bearing the full cost of his protest and leaves his wife a widow and his children orphans by the end of it but his story ends up being preserved and now is looked back on 70 plus years later for all of us to consider, was that worth it? And was it the right thing to do? And as you encounter it, do you wish you had that kind of courage when it seems like no one will know or no one will listen and you're not sure exactly what the results will be, that you would be willing to do what is right and allow another generation to decide uh, and wrestle with the questions of whether it was worth it or not. We have two very short stories on the part of Christ, but they get to the heart of what was for me so moving in that film, and it's already out of the theaters, and you'll have to wait till it comes out on DVD or a streaming service, but I highly commend it to all of you uh, who are willing to watch A Hidden Life. Uh, three hours of your time uh, well spent. Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 to 33. 
Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. And that concludes our reading. Two very short stories that Jesus told. And as we've been going through this series on the parables of Jesus, just by way of reminder, this is an intentional strategy on the part of Christ. As there is increasing hostility from people who are listening in, they're wanting to catch him, say things that they can accuse him of. And yet there's still people who are coming to him and they're desperate for truth. And then there's people who just are tuned out and they're not listening anymore. And so he starts to tell stories as a way of stirring imagination, waking people up to uh, things to catch them off guard, if you will, but also to protect himself from those who are simply looking for him to use certain words or phrases so that they can charge him of treason against the government and so that they can actually execute him. That is eventually what happens. The charges put before him when he goes to the cross is that he's guilty of blasphemy, blasphemy against God, and also treason against the Roman Empire. But Christ is already sensing that in his audience, and so he is being intentionally careful in what he's saying so that those who really want to know and press into the truth and grow in their understanding of God and the world get wisdom and knowledge and those who are just trying to catch him and waiting to punish him aren't given any additional ammunition. And so he tells a series of stories that we know of as parables that are very short stories that communicate profound truth. And all of them, uh, usually beginning with the description of, in Matthew's gospel, the kingdom of heaven. Whereas Brad explained last week that this is Matthew as a Jewish writer uh, regularly referring to the Old Testament, but also maintaining that posture of reverence for God in such a way that they often wouldn't say his name. And if they would write it, they would often use the first letter and the last letter, but not the in-between as just a show of respect for how holy and awesome God is, that who are we even to utter his name? And so uh, in other gospels, you'll hear the kingdom of God regularly referred to by Mark and Luke and John, uh, but here in Matthews, it's a specific theme, the kingdom of heaven, uh, the kingdom from above, the kingdom from the one who is so holy that we want to be very careful lest we ever misuse his name. And so these two stories tell us something about the kingdom. And Matthew's gospel from the beginning had this sense that a new king had been born. That's how it was announced. Wise men had come from the east into Jerusalem because they said, we've seen a sign that there's a new king. And everyone in Jerusalem was talking about it and even got to Herod himself. What? There's a new king that's been born? And they wanted to find out who. They wanted to find out who so that they could honor the king. And Herod wanted to find out who so that he could get rid of him while he was still small and so that he would never have to fear competition or threat from him. And so we saw that around his birth. And then we don't hear a lot about his life up until his adulthood but surely people have been talking to each other did you hear that a king had been born did you hear about those wise men who came from the east did you hear about what Herod did in Bethlehem and all the families who lost their sons because of him 
Where is this king? Have you heard about him? Do you know where he is? And eventually, uh, John the Baptist, a preacher in the wilderness, announces to everyone that this is the king. This is the one who we've been waiting for. This is the Messiah. And Jesus' ministry starts, and he begins to uh, do many things that we would expect of a king to do, but also a lot of things that for his earliest listeners, they would say were unexpected. He didn't come with a, a full army. He didn't come with a, a lot of pomp and circumstance. There was no one announcing him in to say, everyone get ready, Here, here's the king coming into the town. He was otherwise, by appearance, a very ordinary person who was doing amazing things that were hard to explain apart from the fact that he really was a servant of God. But at the same time, there was a sense that it should look bigger than this. It should be better than this. It should be stronger than this if he really, in fact, is the next king. And so Jesus tells these two stories about the kingdom to try to reset the expectation of all of his listeners. And there's three things that we can draw from this. One is just how God's work begins. In both these stories, there's a, an agricultural story and then a domestic story. There's a male and a female. For both of them, though, there's the sense of things always appear small at the beginning. If you were just to take a mustard seed or leaven at face value, there's a smallness and an insignificance to them that you could, you could lose it and almost not even notice it is, is what you're encountering, is something that small. But everything that God does begins that way. It starts from nothing and grows into something. When we see things that are big and strong, we imagine that's how they always were. And we don't remember that, no, 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 nothing ever started big and nothing ever started strong. Everything, the universe itself, has a beginning from which it is grown. And for the people listening who had a background familiar with the Old Testament, they would have known this, that before Joseph was the leader in Egypt, the second in command to Pharaoh, overseeing, administering the government of Egypt, before he was in that position of power, he was a younger brother where most of his brothers didn't like him and were jealous of him. So much so, they sold him into slavery. And if we encounter Joseph as second in command of the government with all this authority and power and say, how did you get here? You must have always been important. He would have said, no, I wasn't. That's not how my story started. I was so small and so insignificant that I was sold into slavery. If we encounter the story of Moses when he's leading the people out of Egypt and uh, all of these dramatic things are happening in the wilderness and say, wow, Moses, I mean, this, is, this must be how it's always been. Where did you come from? Well, my mom was so desperate when I was born that she put me in a basket into a river and had no idea what would happen. But she knew if she didn't, I'd be killed. That's how your story started? Yeah. She was so desperate. Out of fear for what the authorities were going to do to our kids, that she did what was otherwise appearing totally irrational and dangerous and risky. 
before David was the warrior king leading Israel into battle and fighting Goliath. His work was so small and insignificant and his place in the family order that when Samuel came to appoint a new king, his dad, Jesse, was like, no, I don't have anyone else to show you. You don't? There's no one else here? Well, there is, but it's David, and he's taking care of the animals. And Samuel says, "That why actually I'd like to see him. All of those in the story of the unfolding plan of God in Scripture are these examples of really small and insignificant beginnings that grow into amazing movements. But that's not how they always were. They started somewhere. We have those modern-day parables all over the place if we just look around today, especially now with the growth of the gig economy. There are so many things that we think of as some of the largest organizations that influence our world today that did not exist 20 years ago. Facebook did not exist 20 years ago. Twitter did not exist 20 years ago. Instagram did not exist 20 years ago. Uber did not exist like 10 years ago. It still hasn't figured out how to become profitable. They said they're on track in like three years to make a profit. Where did they start? Where were they? 30 years ago, not even in someone's imagination. 50, 60 years ago, what? And now when we think of some of the resources that are available to people that affect so many of our lives, they feel so big. <laughs> They're so big that you're like, what do we do? And, and how, do we, how do we get a hold of this? How do we rein it in in any way? But once they get to that place and once they're that big, we can have this sense that they must have always been that way. And that's not true and it's never been true. Everything has a starting point. Everything has an initial moment of complete weakness and vulnerability before it grows into the potentially strong and amazing thing that it is. I mean, does size matter when you think of sickness and disease? Do you care how big the germ is to get freaked out by it? No, uh, we were last week, uh, our youngest was hospitalized with pneumonia and uh, you could just see his body working hard to breathe. And we just spent 24 hours there and he was good and he kept drinking his fluids well and it never got really scary. But I mean, sitting there and uh, the ER doctor that came in on Friday night, he was really nice, he was an older man and I could see that he was, uh, from his name, that he was probably Middle Eastern and He's trying to be nice to our son and you know we're going to do some tests on you but I'll give you a popsicle at the end and so he's you know asking what flavor popsicles he likes and I saw his name and I said I'll take a risk I'm like do you have any baklava and he like eyes popped and he's like baklava he's like I make baklava I'm like well do you have any that you can you know <laughs> offer and so we start talking uh what do you like it syrupy or dry or what and anyway he wins David's heart mostly over uh, we administer breathing treatment and then at the end he's still not breathing like we would like and so he's like I think I'm going to keep you here for the night and how do you feel about that I'm like well you definitely owe me baklava now like if you're making me stay over like you told me you make it and you like it and so that never came but uh, we're thankful to be close to such amazing resources uh, in something like Children's Hospital for our kids uh, but there again the size of what he had is not what's significant. It's how powerful it is. As a whole world, we're trying to get a hold of how 
big of an issue is this coronavirus. And what should that mean about how people travel and how trade is happening? And again, it's not something you can measure by how physically large something is. It's how quickly can it spread? How much damage can it do? And if it never grows into what like is a large tumor in someone's body, it's not the issue. It's how potent it is. How quickly can it spread? And then we have a way when we think of things when they're already big that they're always big. We also have a way of even with celebrities and uh, people thinking that if they have power, their lives won't be touched by the same things that our lives are touched by. And so two weeks ago, when on a Sunday afternoon, most of us were finding out news of a helicopter crash that took the lives of nine people, and it became such a global story because one of them was Kobe Bryant and was with his daughter. And it'd be sad if it happens to anyone, but there is something in all of our minds that when we all know who someone is and we think of them as powerful and we think of them as wealthy, in our minds, we can just quickly assume that the things we might go through, they're not likely to go through. Instead of realizing what looks big and strong and impenetrable really can change overnight just as much for any of them as it can for any of us. Every big thing started somewhere and everything that looks strong and sure and guaranteed can change overnight. And everything we thought we knew about the world one week can be completely different another week. So Jesus is telling this simple story of how God's work begins, that it is always small and it starts insignificant, but don't let that affect your thoughts on what it could become. A mustard seed is small. Leaven, if you just put it in your hand, is small. But then we also see how God's work progresses. So it starts small and insignificant, but then for both, they start doing their work once they become hidden or buried. And so a seed in your hand will just stay a seed. If, it, if something's gonna happen, you gotta put it in the ground. So now you take this small thing that you can barely see and you put it to where you can't see it anymore. And it's the same with leaven or yeast. Once you put it in the dough and you work it in, you, you lose sight of it. <laughs> once you start to mix it. And God's work progresses in that way. When small and insignificant things then become hidden or buried or mysterious. And we're, we're not sure if they're there anymore. So if in the first reality of how God's work begins, we might wrestle personally with the question of saying, could God use me or could anything I do make a difference? Uh, hopefully we're hearing in this parable Jesus say uh, anyone can make a difference anyone can be used by God there's no one too small no one too insignificant to be used in this one in how God's work progresses we might think of the circumstances of our lives and the things that are just really hard to understand how they could happen and we might say not could God use me but could God use this like, could anything possibly good come from this tragedy or this diagnosis or this situation? Things that are really messed up, that hurt, that are broken. What good could possibly come from fill in the blank? All of us will encounter those things. 
But in, this, in these two simple stories, Christ is saying, God is working still when the small and the insignificant becomes hidden, buried, and mysterious. He's never stopped working. In fact, that's how he chooses to work more often than not. And so going back to some of those same illustrations that I used in Joseph, could Joseph possibly rise to power in Egypt in such a way that he would then have the authority to rescue his family? Could that come from him being sold into slavery? As the story is beginning to unfold and you see what his brothers do to him, you just have this, there's no way this ends well. Or there's no way this ends in anything but just revenge. If he rises to power, he's going to use that power just to get back at them. But that's not how the story goes. He rises to power, and all along the way, in the hidden and mysterious ways of God, he has so much compassion for his brothers who did this against him that though he has the authority to take out revenge on them, he offers them forgiveness. He invites them to come move there and he provides for them. Wow, could God do that? Could God take the experiences of a young shepherd in David and use that to help him as he is a king in Israel give all of us a perspective on God that up until that point we didn't have before? Absolutely. Psalm 23 is one of the most known portions of scripture about the Lord being our shepherd. And David is drawing upon the very experiences of his life that his own father thought so insignificant he shouldn't even recommend him to Samuel as king. And David takes that small and insignificant hidden part of his life and he describes what a relationship with God can be like in a way that has transcended culture for thousands of years. What good could come from this as he's out in the field and no one knows what he's doing and no one's paying attention? Some of the words that would bring comfort to people time and time again when they are saying goodbye to someone they love and everyone feels helpless to come up with words that could possibly bring comfort and so they read Psalm 23 and it brings comfort to so many people. Wow, God can do this. He can over time work things when things that were small and insignificant become hidden and buried. And so I appreciated this quote from C.S. Lewis when he was struggling with his own sense of coming to faith and what's God doing and how can we believe in God if we see this happening or that happening and one of his... Uh, one of his ways of describing it. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. The invisible God becomes more visible to us when we see him working over time in hidden and mysterious ways. And for all the things we can't understand or explain of why things happen, we also look at people like Joseph and then Moses and then David and others and say, how do you explain them getting to where they got unless God is with them? 
How do you explain that type of transformation to love people who've harmed you if there isn't a real God out there who loves us and pours his love into us through the Holy Spirit so that we can do things that otherwise aren't explainable in human terms? How else do you explain that but God? And Jesus is telling these two simple stories to remind people that it is when the seed is planted, when the leaven is kneaded into the dough, when they become invisible and hidden and mysterious, that not only has God not stopped working, it's when he's doing his best work. And it takes place over time. It's not instantaneous, but man, when it happens, you know it. And so the last thing we see is how God's work prospers. There is, at the end of it, a glorious plant, a small tree larger than all the garden plants becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches or uh, to make three measures of flour, which for a domestic ordinary kitchen would just be, it's a picture of an overflowing amount of dough that now is available in this kitchen. And so it doesn't happen right away and it's not always visible what's going on, but eventually there's this sense of overflowing productivity and fruit and maturity and a prospering that is visible to the watching world. Now where all this comes in Jesus' life as he's telling this story is what happens right after this chapter is he goes just a a short walk from where he is in Galilee to Nazareth, his hometown, and he's teaching there in the synagogue and the the questions that come are, who is this guy? Don't we know him? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Don't we know his brothers and his sisters? Surely, if the kingdom was going to come and God was going to do something new in the world, it couldn't possibly be through someone like him from a town like this with the lack of resources that he has. And every one of those people who rejected him in Nazareth because of how ordinary he was and insignificant he was, surely if you would have asked any of them, no, let me tell you, the story gets better. He's about to die. The ones who are trying to get him right now, they're going to get him. And they're going to put him on a cross. Well, then, of course, he can't be the Messiah. Of course, this can't be what God is doing in the world. I don't think he would have come from here. And if he would have come from here, no way something like that could happen to him. That'd be the end of it. It'd be over. If Messiah's dead, crucified on a cross then our hope is lost. Unless God has a way of doing his work most and best when it's hidden and buried and mysterious. And then what happens after he dies on the cross and rises again and he does not go seek revenge against all who punished him but offers them forgiveness and invites his disciples who had a hard time understanding these stories to follow him to become agents of change with him. That very small and insignificant band of disciples becomes now a movement that is on every continent in so many languages on this world that we ourselves are part of the fruit of. That 2,000 years later in a completely different setting, in a completely different language, 
we would be reading these stories is a testimony to the truthfulness that the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And he told them another one. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for how you work. That with the psalmist we can say, what is man that you are mindful of him? That you would choose from the mouth of infants and babies to quiet the enemy and those who are against you. That you would be willing to start somewhere and to begin small. That you are content to work without applause or recognition in hidden and mysterious and buried ways but to bring about restoration and healing and wholeness so that goodness progressively overcomes what is evil, that light overcomes what is dark. We thank you for being that kind of a God that gives each and every one of us as listeners to you all the reason to believe that we can start somewhere and that we can be used by you and changed by you if we commit ourselves to letting you have your way with us to grow and to be a part of the expansion of your kingdom in our world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.